Okay, so each week when we're in here, you will remember that we always want to have a bottom line for you to remember. Hopefully something that when you walk out of the room and if somebody were to say to you, what did you learn in Old Testament tonight? You could say, well, here was the basic idea, okay? So before I get to our bottom line for tonight, I want to um, set this up with something that I want you to consider for a moment. And that is that every one of us has experiences in our lives that form us. We have things that happen to us at some point, and then those things influence us, they impact us for the rest of our lives, or from whatever period of time in which it occurs forward, it continues to impact us. And those things shape who we are in the present. They um, have influence on how we act, our behavior, what we believe. And as we reflect on this ancient history of God's people, very often as we're studying the Old Testament, one of the things that we do is we have a tendency to read this almost like we read a novel because it feels so far removed. It's an ancient culture that we don't really relate to in 2024. A lot of the practices are totally foreign to us. Um, the, uh, this idea of constantly invading armies and territories being taken over. None of us have experienced that in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that as we talk and think tonight about the experiences of the Jews that are living in the southern kingdom, and as we talked about the ones that were living in the northern kingdom, their history, I want you to be sure, I'm going to slow down for a minute as I say this, Everybody get this. Their history is part of our history. And the reason I say that because, is because as children of God, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what God did in forming the nation of Israel, what he led them through, and everything in that redemptive plan that brought us to where we are in 2024 and our understanding of the arrival of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection for us, all of that is also part of our experience. But now for a moment, let's come back into the present for just a second. In just a few minutes, I'm gonna ask you for your second table discussion to take one of those white cards that's in the middle of the table and here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to draw a really simple picture. It can be a stick figure. It can be something really basic. Nobody's going to look at it except you and the others around your table. It's just something that is a visual reminder to you of an experience that you've had, a memory that you have from some time in your life that you would say that today there is still impact on you. And that when you remember that, that as part of that memory, you could say, this still influences me today. It still determines part of the way that I act or I believe. And I'm going to give you a quick personal example to kind of get your wheels turning. In July of 2014, my husband and I were in Canada, where we go every year on vacation, and we had 
gotten there. We'd been there about three days. We got a phone call from one of our neighbors about 8 p.m. that our house was on fire. And it was the result of a lightning strike. And the fire um, struck the upper corner, one of the upper corners of our house. Um, it moved very quickly right through our attic and burned out the attic and then began to as you can imagine, burned downward. It was in the middle of a very big thunderstorm. So we had bedrooms that were damaged and ceilings and rooms in the upstairs that were affected. And as a result of thousands and thousands of gallons of water that the firemen came and poured out on the fire, which we want them to do, right, because we want the house to stop burning. However, all that water means that pretty soon the walls and the ceilings are going to collapse because they can't bear the weight as the water moves down through the structure. So the end result of this was that about 80% of our house had to be taken down to the studs we had to move out immediately, and we had to be out of our house for about a year while it was being reconstructed and everything pretty much redone completely. Now, I tell you that story tonight because it is one of the memorable moments for me that God continues to use to teach and instruct me. And here are the ways that he does that. We all have a sense of security in the place where we live, right? We go home at night, it feels good, right, to go home. And so one of the things that I learned very quickly and in a very tangible way was that was not my home, not anymore. And I moved into a rental home, which was a lovely place where we live for the next year. But you know what? That was not my home. And the Lord reinforces to me to this day, Christine, don't put too much security here. Don't depend on this too much. This is not your final home. All of the things that up until that point I would have put in the category of, well, we need these things, right? I very soon learned that the majority of those things in our lives were luxuries. They were not needs they were just an overabundance of blessings that God had given to us that we could function with so much less than we thought we had to have. And the list of items when we arrived at the house two days later, the list of items that I was really concerned about where were they, what condition were they in, was about this long. And the reason it was about that long is because the only real things I realized I was concerned about were things that represented memories and relationships. All the rest of it was meaningless. And in that time of destruction and sorrow, God showed Jeff and I something so important, and that was he never left us. And he showed us that in a lot of tangible ways. We lived with friends for a month because we couldn't quite figure out with the insurance company and everything else where we were going to land. But pretty soon a friend who's a realtor found a rental home for us. Friends showed up and took possessions out of our home that were important to us and took them back to their houses to store them for us. People brought us 
gift cards and food, and we had restoration workers who we soon learned were believers, and they would pray with us, standing in the kitchen of our burnt-out house every day. And what we learned was, and what God continues to remind me of over and over again, is that that event, as tragic as it was, it did not change in any way the plan that God had to save and redeem me. Now, the point I'm trying to make as I ask you to do this simple little drawing and then share a little bit around your tables is I want you to think about a memory that you have that you can say to this day, there's something that happened at that point in my life that is still reminding me today who I am in Jesus or of something that I needed to be changed in because I was, I was sinning in the way I was viewing a particular thing in my life. So here's your second question on one of the cards. Draw this picture and then talk a little bit about how that memory still impacts you today. All right, so I'm guessing that as I shared that story about our fire, that you could tell that one of the things that happened for me and still happens to this day is as I remember that experience, it brings me to repentance over and over again because God uses it to remind me how to be more grateful, how to remember that my real home is an eternal one, and where my true security lies. So as we head into tonight, there were a whole lot of things that the people in the southern kingdom needed to remember. There were so many things that God had done for them, delivered them time and again, blessed them with a land to live in, restored them time and time again after their sin. But the truth was that they had gone blind and deaf to spiritual things. They were in a mess. But had they remembered, and we're going to see tonight a really tangible example of them remembering, had they remembered, they would have more quickly come to repentance and they would have been restored to the Lord. So here's our bottom line for tonight. Write this down somewhere because this is a lesson for life. Remembering leads to repentance, which leads to restoration. One more time. Remembering leads to repentance, which leads to restoration. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of kings. The period of time that we are in right now, you will be glad to know. If you've got your timeline open in front of you, here is the really good news. C was for creation. A was for? S was for? K was for? And tonight, we get to E. Okay? So now you're up to exile. So C, you are on the home stretch. You are rounding third and heading for home, right? So <clears throat> the first king I want to just mention to you is Hezekiah, 
who was part of our lesson for this week, and he's kind of mixed in in a variety of, variety of ways between last week and this week. Hezekiah reigned for 43 years, and he did a lot of things that led the people of Judah back to the Lord. He was a good king, okay, on our record of the good kings and the bad kings. Hezekiah gets a gold crown because he did a good job. Kind of like you get a gold star on your paper. But anyway, Hezekiah destroyed the high places. He turned the people away from worshiping false gods. And he equipped the priests and the Levites to do their work and to devote themselves to God in the temple. And, and according to his law, we're told in Second Chronicles 31 that he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord. Every work and service, it says of him, was in accordance with the law and the commandments of God. And even during this time, when they endure a major attack from the nation of Assyria, God saves them and defeats Assyria on their behalf because Hezekiah himself is faithful and he petitions the Lord on their behalf and God rescues the people. But, there's always a but coming. Consistent with the pattern that we have seen, his son is a spiritual train wreck. Manasseh comes next. Manasseh is an awful, evil king. He promotes all kinds of idol worship. He goes back to the practice of sacrificing his own children and encouraging the sacrifice of children within the kingdom of Judah. He reigns 55 years, unfortunately. When his son comes into power, his name is Amon. Amon is equally as bad as his father. The only good thing we can say is that he only reigned for two years. And between the the years that pass here, 57, we have Hezekiah, then, or I'm sorry, we have Hezekiah first, and then we have 57 years of Manasseh and Ammon. And what happens in those 57 years is staggering to Judah. The temple is completely in disrepair. They have lost the book of law. They do not know where God's word is. His commandments are nowhere. The priests included do not know where this is. And a young man comes into power by the name of Josiah. He's only eight years old. Imagine being crowned king when you were eight years old. I'd, I'd want to be playing out in the yard, I think. Anyway, but now Josiah, who is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, he moves the focus back toward God. And during his kingship, some very significant things happen. It is said of Josiah that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He truly destroyed all of the idols and the high places. He cleanses the temple. It says of him as a young man that in the first 12 years of his reign, he is constantly seeking the Lord. 
And something really significant happens during the reign of Josiah. On this list I have for you up here, it says they return to the word of God. They remember, they repent, and they are restored. So here's what happens. He sends the priests and some workers in to cleanse the temple, to clean it up and get it back in order so that it once again can be a place where they can worship and honor the Lord. And as they are cleansing the temple, somewhere in a back corner, they find the law of God. They find what had been written in the Mosaic Covenant all those years ago, and they find basically what is the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when they find this, they take it to Josiah, and they begin to read it to him. And as they read it to him, he is overwhelmed with emotion. He mourns. He tears his clothes. He is pretty much beside himself. And why is this? Because right then he is realizing what they have not remembered. And he is realizing how great is the sin of the nation that needs to be repented of in order for them to be restored. So he sends the priests and he says, I want you to go and inquire of the Lord. They go to a prophetess by the name of Huldah, and they say to her, what is the Lord saying to us about this discovery? And she speaks the word of the Lord to them very clearly, and it's not all a pretty picture because what she says to them is that disaster is going to come on this place. Because my people have wandered so far away from me, There has been so much sin, so much worship of false idols, and she prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the carrying off of the people into exile. The good news that she gives them is this, that because Josiah is tender toward the Lord, because he himself has repented and intends to return the people to the word of God, that these events will not happen until after his death. So there is security for a time. And what Josiah then does is he returns the people to focus on a holy God, on the God that has been guiding them all these years. And he reads the word to them himself. He goes out and reads it in a public place. And he, de- he designs um, his actions and their actions so that he makes a covenant with God for himself and on behalf of the people. And he basically says, my covenant to you, Lord, is that we are going to walk with you. We are going to remember all that you have done for us. We are repenting today and seeking restoration. And a beautiful thing happens during the reign of Josiah. He leads the people in a Passover celebration. And what does he do in that process? What does he remind them of when he leads them in Passover? The Exodus, which was God's deliverance 
of his people from Egypt. So he reminds them of one huge event when God saved them from slavery and oppression. And in the course of celebrating the Passover, what they are reminded of is that as they went through all those plagues in Egypt, that every time the Israelites were protected from all of that. And the last one, which we would certainly say is the worst, when God told them to put the blood of lambs over their doorposts to protect their houses so that when the angel of death passed by to take the children in Egypt, he would not take the children of the Israelites. Now what Josiah has done for them is he has reminded them. He has brought them to remembrance of something that makes them repent of the spiritual mess that they are in and restores them to a relationship with God. So here's your third discussion for tonight. I'd like for you to talk about the depths of Josiah's feelings that you see in 2 Chronicles 34, 19 to 21 and 29 to 33 as he reads and hears the word of God. Talk for just a few minutes about what you think is happening inside Josiah and then talk about your own feelings toward the word of God. What does it mean in your life? How much do you value it? What do you want others to know? about the word of God. Okay, let's come back together. I would love to just hear from a couple of you your answer to the questions about what do you want others to know about the word of God? Who will share how they answered that? You want them to know his promises. I'll bet you. Yeah, that's great. Somebody else. It's true. Mm -hmm. Good answer. Yes, he does. Hallelujah. All right. So we've touched on the kings, and last week you might recall that Neil took us through the nature of kingship, God's expectations of the kings, and I think the really good news about Josiah and also Hezekiah 60 years prior to him was these were two kings who worked hard to meet those expectations that God had to truly fulfill what was intended about the nature of kingship. So now what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears just a touch, and we're going to look at prophets. During the time that these kings were ruling, there were two prophets that we're going to look at tonight, Isaiah and Micah. And what we know as we look at this, um, the prophecies and the warnings from Isaiah and Michael, Micah, I'm sorry, I have a son named Michael, that just slipped out just like that, um, is that <clears throat> they amplify 
the history of what's going on in the nation. We begin to understand more of the way God is addressing the people during this time frame. So the first person we're going to look at here is Isaiah. And um, last week you learned that Isaiah's name um, means God saves. And Isaiah prophesied for 60 years during this time period. He warned um, the nation of Judah that they were spiritually blind and deaf. He does that over and over again in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book rich with warnings and application and prophecy that if you have a chance to read or study Isaiah, you will learn a tremendous amount about what God is planning for the people. Other than reminding them of their spiritual blindness and deafness, he repeats this message over and over again that they have forsaken God. And he talks in great detail about the hypocrisy of their worship. There are some passages in the book of Isaiah that if you feel like your, your worship and your understanding of really um, serving the Lord and knowing what it means to have your heart attuned to him, there are some passages in the book of Isaiah that can take us from going through the motions with things in worship, which is exactly what the Jews were doing. They were going through the motions. They were checking it off a list. And there are passages that name that clearly and say, if you really want to worship God, here's what you will do. And the essence of it always revolves around, you will come before me in humility. You will take care of widows and orphans who have nothing you will speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. It is all about service to God and a relationship with him that shows a heart that is completely tender and broken for the same things that God's heart breaks over. Isaiah has prophecies that basically center around these things right here. <clears throat> the destruction that is coming and the exile that they will be taken into, he does reassure them that God will continue to comfort them in exile. And when you read some of the other historical books in the Old Testament that occurred during the period of the exile, you will get into this more in the next couple weeks, you can see times very clearly when God comes to his people, even though they're in those circumstances. And he comforts them and holds them up. And then finally, Isaiah prophesies that God will make things right in the end. And many, many of Isaiah's prophecies are messianic. Now, God blesses Isaiah with a very extended view into the future. You can hear it and read it in his words. So, as is true with many, many prophecies, there are multiple applications of what Isaiah is saying to the people. And what I mean by that is that always in prophecy, there is kind of an immediate fulfillment that applies directly to the circumstances that the people are in. Then there is sort of a mid-range, or you could call it future application of what is coming and what will occur. 
And then there is a farther future application, which is messianic in the sense that it is prophecy about the coming redeemer. So if we are looking for the redemptive link in the history that, is, that we find in the Old Testament, we don't have to look much further than what was being prophesied to the people during this period of time. Because Isaiah and Micah both tell them over and over again, here is the redeemer that God is bringing. He's going to redeem you from the exile that you're about to be sent into. So I want to show you a few of these things because I want you to see some specific examples. And you might just want to jot down these references and you can look at them again when you get home. In Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah writes, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You may remember that earlier God told the Israelites that they would be a light to the other nations. He is also referring in this particular passage to Jesus' coming, that he will be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 66, 18, he says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. This was definitely a prophecy talking about the coming of Jesus, but this is also a further into the future prophecy of a time when God will bring all nations and all people together to see his glory. I want to show you a couple things from the New Testament that tie this together. So this is from John 12, and Jesus is in Nazareth, and it says, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah had predicted. Remember when Isaiah kept saying over and over again, your eyes are blind, your ears are deaf, you cannot see? Look at the rest of this. The quote from Isaiah is, Lord, who had believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that their eyes cannot see, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this, because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. So once again, what you see right here is Isaiah's immediate application of those words was to the people of Judah. They were, in fact, spiritually blind and deaf. Their hearts had hardened toward the Lord to a depth that they could not remember and see anything that he had done for them. But Isaiah is also pointing to the time when the Messiah comes and when People's hearts are hard toward him. And because their hearts are hard, they do not realize the glory of the one in front of them. And then from Luke 4, 18 to 21. Jesus is in the synagogue, and here's what happens. He picks the hand him. He stands up to read from the word of God. They hand him the book of Isaiah to read from. 
And what he reads is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now look at what happens. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, and he says, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Isaiah's words. So it's important for us to realize that as Isaiah shares all of these things, and as we remember that the history of ancient Israel is a part of our history, that what was true in Judah in the first century and in the first century, Judah in ancient times, and then in the first century at the time of Christ, is still true today. People still have hard hearts. History repeats itself over and over again. And this rich prophecy that we can read in so many places, in Isaiah, and Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. So we read him again in application in the New Testament. All that that prophecy meant for Judah, it also meant for the reality of life in the first century at the arrival of the Messiah, and it is meant for us and our future today. And finally, I want you to see one more thing. I love this about Isaiah and the view that God had given him. He says in the 65th chapter, look, these are the words of the Lord. I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad. Rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. And then what do we read in Revelation 21 as we are reading promises about Jesus' second coming? We read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Is there a link between the Old Testament and the New is there a link in this redemptive story between what we hear from Isaiah, what we see in the lives of the Israelites during even this time of the divided kingdom and Jesus coming and the future for each of us? Let's move on to Micah for just a, little, a moment or two, and then we're going to finish this up. Micah's warnings to the people. If you've never read the book of Micah, it's a very short little book. So much good stuff in Micah. Micah's warnings are he consistently exposes their sin. And the sin at this point that Micah just goes on and on about with them is that they are cheaters and deceivers. They are taking advantage of people. They have no concern over shedding blood. And yet they do not think that destruction will come to them because they say, well, the Lord's with us. We're not going to be judged or taken over. And he reminds them consistently that their lives are contrary to God's laws. The prophecies that he shares 
are that Samaria and Judah will be destroyed, but that after the exile, the mountain of God will be revealed. One more reference to Jerusalem. And then there is that beautiful passage that we read from Micah, often at Christmas time, appropriately, about the coming Savior. Oops. Can you fix that for me? Go to the slideshow. Over on the right, up at the top where it says slideshow, just, there we go. All right. This is, I'm sorry, this first one is Micah calling out their sin. But as for me, I am filled with power. With the spirit of the Lord, I am filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. No harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. Because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. And then here's the last one, the one that's probably familiar to all of you. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I think, I don't know. You are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So with that in mind, we're going to go to our final table discussion for tonight. Get out your Bibles or your phones or whatever you're using and Look up Micah 6.8 for just a moment and talk for a few minutes about how that's a guide for each of us. Even though he said it thousands of years ago, it is still true for every one of us today. And then look at Micah 7.18-20 and talk about how it encourages you as you remember, repent, and are restored. Okay, let's come back together. So, here's how we close tonight. You have officially arrived at the exile. I have bad news for you. The few remaining kings who will finish out in Judah are all evil. God is very unhappy, and so the moment comes, and they are carried off. But here's the good news. You will study and know that he is with them there. It is recorded time and again. God never leaves his people. And where are we as we think about our place in all this history? We are closer and closer to the day when Jesus will come again. So there you go. Thank you so much. You've been great tonight.